Hello and welcome to In the Days of Noor with me, Noor, where we talk about Islamic-related topics and social issues. So alhamdulillah, I'm here today with Angelica and we're going to be talking about um, sex and intimacy in the Muslim community. That is her line of work. So inshallah, if you can maybe introduce yourself briefly and then hopefully we can get into a couple of topics. Oh, my name is Angela Samanziali. I'm a certified sexual and reproductive health educator, um, known on social media as the Village Auntie. And yeah, I talk about love, sex, and intimacy from both uh, a Black perspective mm-hmm. and an Islamic perspective. Okay, Hamnia. So, how did you become interested in this work? I I think I read that you are a convert. So, is this something you were interested in before Islam or after Islam? I first began interested, became interested in sexual health in high school. So this was okay. pre-Islam. My mm-hmm. sister volunteered for an HIV prevention services agency in Detroit, that's my hometown. And I, I just marveled at her ability to connect with the community. She later became a nurse. And I did not want to follow the path of being a nurse or a doctor. And so I went into education, worked in education for a number of years. And then when I moved to Phoenix, Arizona, the opportunity uh, presented itself to work in a behavioral health services organization in the HIV outreach department. And so I was able to reignite my passion for helping the community and pique my interest in finding out more about sexually transmitted infections and, and the like. And at that time, I was a Muslim. Uh, I had been a Muslim for five years uh, when I first joined the organization. and. Working in public health, I was able to address the general community, but when I would talk to my sisters in the masjid or in community organizations, I was astounded at how little sexual health information and reproductive health information that they had. And so I I found that it was important for me to begin to educate women. So I actually did this work for a number of years below ground, just woman to woman, uh, work was spread by word of mouth, um, and then Two years ago, I finally decided to take the work public, and here we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, so that's interesting that you that you started before Islam, before you accepted Islam, and then you sort of continued. This subject is, of course, very taboo to talk about publicly, certainly, in our community. So how do you deal with really two things? So one, being a Muslim woman and the shame and the the shame around it, but also the modesty that we do want to have in talking about this subject. And then secondarily, because you're also a black woman and so black women are hypersexualized, so then there's there could also be a strange stigma there in talking around this subject. How do you deal with like both identities and both communities in, in talking about this subject? So I'm very careful on social media about the things that I say. I, I think I do a good job of pushing right up against the barrier of of decency. So making sure that I remain on the side of proper adab, you know, proper modesty, um, but also letting women know that if you want more information, we can talk privately or there are workshops and events. Uh, I do not entertain conversations with men. 
uh, on the timeline or in my DMs. That's something that I make very clear. Of course, if a man sends me a message and says, oh, my wife follows your feed. Thank you for what you've done. You've helped our marriage. I'm not going to be a jerk and not say, you know, you know, but if people, if men want to engage with me around the work, I'm very careful not to and to refer Mm -hmm. them to a man who can answer their questions or who can engage with them better. And I do want to be visually disruptive. So, you know, I wear a hijab. I present myself as a visibly Muslim woman. And I want to be able to do that because I want people to understand that there's there's no shame attached to learning about sex. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that I will absolutely not discuss online. Uh, I say those for private workshops where there are only women who are allowed to attend. And then just in general, I think the way that I deal with the subject is I'm a professional. I've been working in public health for almost 20 years now. I am a pretty high ranking um, within my organization. I'm very visible uh, in the state where I live in terms of public health and policy making. So I approach the work as a professional. And I think the most important thing with that is making sure that I don't center myself. So I don't talk about what I do, what I like, what I've experienced. The only time that I will reference myself is in talking about my experience as a survivor of sexual assault and sexual trauma, but not going into much detail. And again, that's that's to let women know that I'm an advocate and an ally, but I'm also a part of the community that I'm addressing. So I think, you know, remaining professional and also, you know, just if, if people try to challenge me on a religious basis, making sure that I have proper evidence to back me up. And I do have a group of advisors, imams, uh, and scholars that I can go to who can help provide me with guidance if I ever run into, which I haven't yet, alhamdulillah, mm-hmm. if I ever run into anyone who challenges me pretty um, harshly. But Alhamdulillah, since I've been doing this work publicly, I've only gotten maybe two people who have not liked the approach that I've taken. Um, For the most part, I've gotten quite a bit of support from the community at large. Yeah, and you know, I think I have realized that myself, that this, like, if I just see people sort of publicly talking about sex, like, that's not something I'm necessarily going to gravitate to whether it's a muslim or non-muslim but i do think there's something about your work where you are able to address it in such a straightforward but still balanced way and and i'm not surprised to hear that you have um shayuk that you could turn to because i i just sense that you have that connection um so i do want to ask you 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 said that you used to talk to sisters one-on-one about these issues and then you did decide to go public. What made you decide to have an online presence? And then what do you think is the main difference between online and in-person gatherings? I decided to go online at the urging of a very dear friend, Camila Rashad from Muslim Wellness Foundation. Mm -hmm. I presented at the Black Muslim Psychology Conference, and it was really um, at her urging because she saw the work that I was doing on my Facebook page of Rites of Passage and having these workshops with women, and she said, this is something that I want you to bring to the conference. And I was hesitant at first because again i i don't do workshops alone and talk to men so i said okay well this is a black muslim psychology conference i will only talk to women and she said okay we can make that happen and i said you have to allow me to speak freely and she said you, you have the floor to 
facilitate your workshop as it needs to be done. And the workshop was completely full. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was almost standing room only. And that let me know that there were women who were hungry for this information. Mm-hmm. And that first public workshop, the youngest attendant was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And the eldest, I think, was 80 years old. There was a sister who came up to me afterwards and told me that she was 80 years old. And she wish, she wishes that she had had this information when she was younger. And mm-hmm. so I saw that there was a need. So about, I think, a week after the Black Muslim Psychology Conference, we launched the Twitter page and the Instagram mm-hmm. feed. And I was nervous at first because I didn't know how people would receive the information because I was only used to delivering it to people who already knew what to expect. Mm-hmm. And I think that the big difference between online, uh, my online presence and my in-person presence is it, it seems sort of counterintuitive, but people are a lot more open and genuine with their feelings online. So mm-hmm. I have people, and I think it's because I'm behind the screen, mm-hmm. but even though I post pictures of myself, and I wasn't going to post pictures of myself at first just because I didn't want my face out there, but I thought it was important that people know that, hey, I'm a real person. I'm actually, you know, I'm a Muslim. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, <laughs> it's, I'm not a bot. Mm-hmm. Um, but people, people there from very, very early on, uh, share with me some very intimate secrets, some mm-hmm. very private stories um, about trauma, about curiosity, about their lack of information. And I think the online space provides people a level of anonymity um, that allows them to be more transparent than they would in person. Mm-hmm. I, I doubt that some people would share the way that they do online with me if we were in public. Mm-hmm. And so that, that has made it a very um, precious um, responsibility that I have because I see that there are so many people who are looking for information and don't have a place to turn to or they're looking for support and the fact that they would reach out to me I'm pretty much a stranger to them mm-hmm. lets me know that the work is important and it's filling a void that I didn't know existed to this depth within the community mm, that's wow that's that's really interesting in one sense I can understand people being more open because they're not seeing you so they can feel more free and feel like okay this person won't judge me because they can't see me um but at the same time I I almost would have thought that it might be more intimate in person so that's that's really interesting um so you said there's a there's a gap within the community so what exactly is how would you define sex education and what do you see as being needed like what exactly is it that is not being taught that needs to be taught so muslim perspective or just in general i guess in the in the muslim community in particular like when because you know when i hear people say we need sex education in the muslim community like i don't know what exactly they mean so what do you mean when if you agree with that when you would say um we need sex education in the Muslim community. For me, sex education, and I do teach sex education as a part of a rights of passage program that mm. I've created for a young Muslim woman, and we always start out with our anatomy, um, mm-hmm. learning our basic body parts. These are things that we assume, some parents assume are taught in school, and it's not taught uh, in most schools. Um, especially for women, just understanding what our body parts are made to do, what they're mm. meant to look like, 
um, disrupting that notion that all female reproductive um, organs look exactly the same, mm-hmm. all female genitalia look the same. So we start there with a base of knowledge, and that is sort of an anesthetized version of sex education because we're not really okay. talking about sex. We're talking mm-hmm. about sex organs. And then I think it's important to talk about sex education and what sex is, uh, and we can do that from an Islamic perspective. So when I teach the girls, I talk to them first about their bodies, you know, what each body part is, what each, what each body part is meant to do, and then we move into what are you required to clean. So we talk about whistle, we talk about mm-hmm. menstruation, we talk about that so that they understand that this is not about teaching young people how to have sex or, mm-hmm. you know, how to have sex safely is teaching them what are your religious requirements and so mm-hmm. as a part of that if I'm teaching young girls about when their period ends for example mm-hmm. we have to talk about the different fluids that are emitted from the vaginal cavity and so then we get into menses, menstrual blood we get into arousal fluid we get into all of these different things and that is a segue into talking about okay so then what is after you get married, you know, this is Islamically, this is the definition of sex. And talking about very clearly what sex is from an Islamic perspective, because there are a lot of youth out here who are engaging in sex acts, but they don't necessarily fit what we might consider the Islamic definition of sex. And so we talk about um, how to avoid zina how to avoid um, putting yourself into dangerous situations by engaging in activities that are not quite sex, but mm-hmm. get very close to it. And, you know, for parents, when, when I first did the sex education class, I, it was with a group of young girls whose fathers are all imams. Hmm. And not one, of the, not one of the imams, and that was intentional. I did the pilot group. Mm-hmm. with girls who I knew came from households where they're, and some of them are pretty prominent. I can't, I promise that I would not say their name, no, um, but I, I was very specific in wanting to make sure that I got girls who I knew had some form of religious training at home. Mm-hmm. And I talked to the, I talked to the parents and said, okay, this is what I want to talk about. I, I was very explicit in, in what, this is what I'm going to share. This is what we're going to say. Is there a problem with this? And one of the imams said, there is a problem. You need to go deeper. I want mm-hmm. you to go just a little bit further. Don't just stay on the surface, but I really want you to talk to them because these are Muslim children in 2019, and there are mm-hmm. lots of different things that they're being bombarded with. So it's important that they understand what sex is, what sex is not, and what what ways they might be putting themselves in danger. So I think sex education is important because we have a lot of, I get messages from people all of the time who are getting into marriages and they don't know how to have sex. They don't mm-hmm. know what their bodies are supposed to do. I had one woman uh, who had not consummated her marriage after six months because mm-hmm. she was so frightened at mm-hmm. what she was supposed to do. And this is not just women, this is, mm-hmm. these are men also. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that we do a disservice to our youth when we're not properly educating them and they wind up um, either finding themselves in precarious situations or they are so, they have such a lack of education that when they do get into marriages, uh, the sexual side of their relationship suffers because they not been educated properly. So I do think sex education is important. 
but I think that sex education in the Muslim community should come from someone within our community mm -hmm. so that we can have the proper levity and the proper perspective uh, in order to empower our youth. That, alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm really grateful for that explanation because I'm sure that many people like myself, when I would first hear people talk about we need sex education in the Muslim community, we think of how it's taught in secular schools, which is essentially what is safe sex. And so that can be scary mm -hmm. because we want our children and we want everyone to not um, engage in zina. We want people to get married. And so that's really valuable that it's not just about that. It's about our bodies, and then it's also about sex, but sex in, in a halal, um, you know, in a marriage. So um, I want to segue from that to, you know, the news cycle, social media news cycle. It's so fast that so much has happened since then, but I think it was maybe a week or so ago um, where the rapper T.I. spoke about getting his daughter's um, hymen checked. So I wanted to ask you about that. I know you had a post on social media um, about that and, and just talking to people about what the hymen is and that it's not actually an accurate predictor of virginity. So around that, I wanted to ask you, for a father, I think that a lot of people can agree that what he's doing is probably too much, an invasion of privacy, or, or it just feels like too much, however we want to um, categorize it. But for a Muslim parent, how do you have that conversation with your child about not committing zina? How do you, quote unquote, make sure that they're not, or are you just not able to? How do you, how do you engage that conversation? So... <laughs> For so first of all, hymen tests are not medically accurate. They've mm -hmm. never been medically accurate. They've been debunked by every medical association that I can think of because the hymen itself it doesn't actually break. Um, there could be small tears to the hymen, but it stretches, so it sort of moves out of the way. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of activities that can actually cause tearing of the hymen. Uh, I used to be an avid African dancer. And I remember one of my students reported, and she had not yet started her period, and she thought she started her period, but she actually had a tear to her hymen, and so she had blood. So the idea of someone in 2019 who has access to education, you know, who has, you know, the wherewithal to know better, who was told by the doctor that this is not a medically accurate way to test for virginity, and yet they still pushed and even coerced the daughter into undergoing this test, Right. to me felt very abusive because mm. it, it's something that is unnecessary and it's not really going to give the information that he's looking for. Okay. There is no test, honestly, there's no medical test uh, that can test whether a woman is a virgin or not. Mm. Um, and I just, when that example came up, someone challenged me and I said, well, you know, I live in a country where there were young Muslim women who were engaging in a haram act they were entering not through the vaginal cavity but through another cavity mm -hmm. would those women still be considered virgin and That's they funny. said well i never thought about it like that mm -hmm. and i said yes you know what if a girl is participating in oral sex mm -hmm. does that make her still a virgin there, there are nuances mm -hmm. to everything and i think one of the ways that parents can address it and i'm, I'm the mother of a 14 year old and mm -hmm. a 12 year old mm -hmm. and these are conversations that we have 
Uh, I think talking to your children, developing an emotionally safe and vulnerable space for them to share and talk candidly is so important. It's very difficult for parents. I work in public health, so I'm able to have these conversations with my children because I'm trained to do so. But not every parent is able to. This is why sex education is needed in the Muslim community. And, and I don't necessarily think that sex education should start in school. It should start from the parents. So parents should be having conversations with their youth prior to them entering into puberty, while they're in puberty, and talking to them, at, you know, around those really sensitive ages where you know that urges might start to develop, so 14, 15, 16, talking to them and not in a way that they will have shame about their bodies or shame about their feelings, but so that they understand that these feelings that you may be having are normal. Your body is working as it should, but this is why it's important to engage in halal partnerships. This is why it's important to engage in, in a halal marriage. And having those conversations, I think, is a lot more helpful than forcing them to undergo tests that are only going to make them feel um, physically violated. Mm. Um, I think that parents, have, we have to do a better job of communicating with our youth, and if we can't communicate with our youth, we need to have trusted adults from within our circle um, that can have those conversations. I have I have a friend who is a preventionist, and there are certain issues that my son will say, can I call Auntie Geronda? And mm -hmm. I know if he wants to call Auntie Geronda that there's an issue that he may feel shy to talk to me about, but he feels completely open talking to her about. Now, this is someone who's mm -hmm. known him since he was born. Mm -hmm. And she talks to him, and then she calls me, and then we debrief. And she gives both of us ways to come together to have the conversation. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of authentic conversations within Muslim families mm -hmm. and, and understanding that you know, there are a lot of things our youth are doing, a lot that they are doing to satisfy these urges because no one is telling them why they shouldn't or why you know that might be detrimental. Right. So they're really going it on their own and they're winding up in situations that are harmful to them, not just physically, but also spiritually and emotionally. Mm -hmm. Do you think at least when it comes to young girls, do you think that any part of that in engaging in sexual acts that any part of that is about low self-esteem or self-worth is that something that can be addressed in order to help avoid zina absolutely i think for i think for young girls and for young boys mm. self-esteem is something that needs to be addressed because we, we my, my platform focuses on women but our boys are under an immense amount of pressure as well yeah. um they they are being groomed by older older girls by adult women uh in some cases and part of my issue with the whole ti incident was that he was saying that he wanted to make sure that his daughter was a virgin so that he could preserve her so it made it seem as though her virginity was her most important quality. Now it is important. Your 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 sexuality, you know, maintaining virginity, that is not unimportant. But when you place value only in someone's sexuality, it makes it 
so easy for them to be manipulated. So the mm. first person that says, oh, you're beautiful, the first person that shows you love in a way that you maybe have not experienced before, you may be so willing and ready to give up this most sacred part of yourself because you feel that that's where your value lies. Mm. And teaching young people to have self-esteem and to have a validated existence simply because they're a part of a law's creation is so important. And I think that's even more important than sex education because when you have a, a, a sex, good sex starts with a positive sense of self and self-love. And so many of our youth are missing that and they don't have anyone that's pouring into them and helping them to bolster that side of themselves. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that that's, wow, mashallah. You know, with the, maybe just one more thing about the whole TI thing. Um, I think that, or two things sort of related. One, I think that maybe some people, especially men, may find what he's doing refreshing because we live in a society where a lot of parents will just say, you know, do whatever you want, just as long as you do it safely. So the idea of trying to protect one's daughter to that extreme might be appealing to to some people um and i think i think what you're saying and and correct me if i'm wrong is that at a certain point you just don't have control there really is nothing you can do beyond trying to have that open communication with your child there isn't I mean, there, if, if what we're looking for is a magic pill or a magic test that's going to test their virginity, there isn't one. And, and I guess I don't really buy into the idea that it's refreshing that he's trying to protect her virginity because in that same interview, he talked about how his 15-year-old son is sexually active and he has no problem with that. Hmm. So how is the girl valued but the boy is not? And also considering, you know, T.I. is someone who has been well known in the media for having extramarital affairs, for treating women in a very um, terrible way, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But somehow his daughter is, he's protecting his daughter, not because she's a person, but because, again, from my perspective, the Mm -hmm. part that he values the most is her sexuality. So what does that say to her? And she she since unfollowed her father on Mm -hmm. social media, Um, She's been very embarrassed. And what happened Mm -hmm. was, instead of protecting her by talking about this publicly, her social media pages, I went to them, her social media pages were bombarded with men who were saying, well, let me be Uh, the first to take your virginity. So I think think that you can be protective. I think you can be modestly protective of all of your children, male Mm -hmm. and female. Um, Certainly don't talk about it on the public sphere, Mm -hmm. um, but also create, create, a relationship with your children where you can have these types of conversations. And, you know, him taking her to the, the gynecologist, I think, is fantastic. I mm-hmm. wish more fathers would get involved in that way. He just went that one step further with the Hyman test. It mm-hmm. sort of broke all of the, the goodness down. And the fact that he doesn't have the same protective stance over his son um, is, is troubling as well. Yeah. Um, with that, with... Um just to sort of switch a bit to talk a bit more about women. Um, I feel that for women in our society, I mean, in a lot of ways, but in particular with our bodies, that we don't live in a society where we're really allowed to encourage to be deeply connected with our bodies, to love and appreciate our bodies. In fact, it often seems that our bodies are often the enemies or something to be fixed. You know, you have your 
period, you go take this medicine so you don't have to feel, not, not that I'm saying anyone has to deal with pain, but it's always seen as something that has to be fixed or something to get over. You have your baby, okay, you have this limited amount of time to have the pregnancy and then have the baby and then you have to get back to your life, you have to get back to work. And something like menopause isn't even really discussed in our society. So I'm wondering, of course, first, do you agree with any of that? But also, how do you think, what are some practical ways that women can just get more in touch and feel more in sync with our bodies and not see um, some of the things that we go through as burdens? And I won't even say to see it as blessings, but at least to just be more connected and more in touch with, with our bodies. I think that's an excellent question, and it's absolutely true. Uh, we're taught from very, very young. I remember uh, when I first started having my friends. I was a late mm-hmm. bloomer, so I, you know, I wasn't a part of that cadre. But when my friends first started um, experiencing menstrual cramps, and everyone was talking, you know, trading mydol at school, it was like mm-hmm. at, at the very first sign of the development or the maturation of the female body, we're taught to numb the sensations and mm-hmm. numb our connection to our bodies. Mm-hmm. So, again, I think that goes back to understanding anatomy, and it also goes back to I'm a strong proponent of having an intergenerational village of women. Mm-hmm. So, if you're, if you're a 15-year-old woman, right, a 15-year-old young woman, you've reached puberty, you have your mother, but then do you also have older sisters within the community that you go to? Do you also have younger sisters right. in the community, people that you can ask questions to, people who can provide information that... Um, is nourishing and nurturing to you. I also think um, we need to, we should stop relying so heavily on um, artificial fixers for our bodies Mm. and begin to learn how to enjoy our bodies in their natural state. So deodorant sprays and, you know, feminine washes and Mm. uh, painkillers, all of these things that are taught to teach us not to experience the fullness of how our body bodies feel, mm-hmm. not to experience the fullness of how our bodies are scented, um, how our mm-hmm. bodies look, and all of that goes down, goes back to education. This is why the Village Anti Movement is really rooted in a Pan-African uh, idea of femininity and womanhood, mm-hmm. because, you know, I teach women about different teas that you can take. So, okay, don't take ibuprofen. Maybe you might try this tea mixture. Um, we right. talk about the staining. We talk about Dukan. We talk about different body images and body types, because we we're, we are bombarded by so much media that teaches us that being a woman is burdensome, yes. uh, being a woman is painful, mm-hmm. and you're going to have to deal with this for the rest of your life. <laughs> and I want to switch that, shift that narrative because being a woman is beautiful. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it is a process of growth. It's a process of continually birthing oneself. Um, so I think getting back in touch with our traditional folk ways, whatever that means for you. So if you're Pakistani, if you're Egyptian, if you're Australian, if you're Native American, getting back to what, is, what did your foremothers do? I have a hashtag, mm-hmm. the ways of our foremothers. Mm-hmm. And I like to talk about how did our foremothers deal with these issues? And even looking at um, the medicine of the Prophet Muhammad, mm-hmm. there's, there's healing there. There's healing for everything there. So I think getting back to those traditional folk ways uh, is definitely one way that we can get back in touch with our femininity in a unique way. Yes. Um, One thing I'll I'll just mention is I remember in grad school, there was 
someone who it wasn't a I don't know if it was a full-blown study but this person had went to Saudi Arabia I think for maybe their thesis or something and one of the things they noted is that Saudi women were actually really comfortable talking about their menstruation more than in the oh, states yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I lived in Saudi Arabia for five mm. years and let oh, me tell okay. you I was uh-huh. like oh this is how we get down <laughs> Yeah, and it's so interesting because here we think ourselves so open, but no, we're open about very limited things. When it comes to a woman's mm-hmm. body, we still really Absolutely. are very quiet about that. Yeah, so that, we that's are. Just, yeah. And you know, even. And I think yeah, that's. Please. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the problem with. Because um, having lived in Saudi Arabia, I was, I was also surprised at how open women were were about talking about their menstrual cycle and all things woman. And mm. I think for, for Americans, we look at those cultures as being oppressive and backwards, right. when in reality, I think we can put those labels on our culture sometimes because mm. there's this big push towards sexual liberation and sexual promiscuity as the key to freedom and liberation. But how can you be liberated when you don't even know your body, when right. you can't even talk about your body, when you have such shame about it? So it's really, it's really interesting when you look at it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, alhamdulillah, mashallah. I, I would go on with that, but I know we have limited time. So I did want to talk to you, spend some time on this issue that is really interesting to me. Um, You had a, a tweet uh, a little while back where you said, when sex becomes coercive, it can lead to a decrease in your partner's uh, vulnerability. Decreased vulnerability inevitably leads to reduced intimacy, once intimacy in various forms begins to fade, the relationship can be can lead to ruin. So this topic is very interesting to me, and and you know I I find it so interesting in some ways that I'm so intrigued by your by your work. Um, so I think that on this issue, I've usually thought of it um, with the fic. Then it's and you can tell me if you have you know different perspective. But on the fic that at least I've learned, then there's this um, obligation put on women to have open sexual, basically to always be open to sex with, with their husbands. And we know that there are some um, very strong sentiments from the hadith that speak to that. So I want to know, how do we deal with that reality in the fic, in the hadith of having to of sex being an obligation but then it not being coercive like how do you think of those two things so i think i think being open to sex and being coerced into sex are two different extremes mm-hmm. one is one is i love my husband i want to be physically intimate with him but i'm tired but you know what I really enjoy this connection with him. So instead of sex lasting 20 minutes, I have no problem with having sex with him and maybe it goes five minutes. Mm. Coercion in sex is, I don't care if you're sick, I don't care if you're pregnant, I don't care Mm. if you are grieving, I don't care if I've been emotionally abusive or verbally abusive, I have a right to your body and you're going to give it to me. I think those are two very different things. Those are two very different extremes. And so that tweet was in relation to the latter. If you are in an environment that is emotionally and spiritually oppressive, where you're right, you're right to fair treatment, you're right to just 
treatment is not being met and you're also being coerced sexually, that is going to lead you to feeling less vulnerable. You're going to feel, right. you're not going to be as open with your partner because that then you're venturing into abuse. So it's not about, it's not about, you know, being open to your partner because both men and women should be open to each other. And that's mm-hmm. sweet. I made, I made sure not to put man or woman because some men are coerced into sex with their partners as well. Their wives mm-hmm. can coerce them. But, but with women, uh, when women are being abused emotionally, spiritually, financially, and then they're being coerced into sex, then sex becomes duty. It becomes right. a responsibility rather than a way of connecting. And, and you know, when men use a hadith or they use, you know, okay, the fix says this, then you're, you're just presenting rulemaking. And rulemaking mm-hmm. does not make for um, good intimacy. So I think there's a balance that has to happen. Um, there's some nuance there. If a woman is not feeling up to having sex, if a woman is dealing with something emotionally, the, the relationship should be a safe space to talk about those issues. And the husband should be there to listen and respond accordingly. Mm-hmm. But once you get into this is my right, I have a right to your body, then you're pushing up against those parameters. And when you when you reduce a relationship to only talking about your right to something, it right. reduces the intimacy greatly. So that, that, that's where I was looking at it from mm-hmm. that standpoint. Um, because I think a lot of men may not understand how, you know, their wanting sex is affecting their wives. And so there needs mm. to be some communication that happens on both ends. Because once sexual intimacy starts to fade in a marriage, it, it, quick, it can quickly go downhill. I mean, it can recover, mm. but if, if you don't stop it before, you know, the descent gets too deep, the marriage can dissolve very quickly. Right. And that's kind of the, the interesting thing to me is that if you look in the fake and look in the hadith and you see, again, the this, this strong sentiment or obligation that women have to have sex with their husbands, it's an interesting thing because that exists. But at the same time, if men use that in order to... Um, be intimate with their wives, it's not going to be enjoyable for either person, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and, then, and so yeah. then mm-hmm. what so then what's the point? Right. <laughs> so right. It's, it's it's harm it's harming both it's harming both partners. This is why communication is so important. Because, you know, some sometimes you might not want sex, but it could be conditional. And it can mm-hmm. have nothing to do with how you feel about your partner. It could be due to external circumstances. But this right. is why communication is, is so important in relationships. Right, right. Um, so with that, how do we look at emotional connection and physical connection? Um, a lot of research, at least that I've read, it seems that physical connection is more important for men and that even if they're not really feeling the relationship in other ways, it doesn't mean they won't want to satisfy that need with their wife. Whereas for a woman, if she's tired or if she's not being emotionally satisfied, um, then she won't want to engage in intimacy. Um, First, have you seen that in your research? Do you agree or disagree with that? And then how, how does a how does a married couple juggle those two things of fulfilling the emotional connection, fulfilling the physical connection and 
when do you or should you give in to the physical connection if the emotional connection isn't there? Uh, I don't really buy into the research. Um, okay. It hasn't. Um, there's lots. There's a lot of research that also speaks to the fact that women can be just as physically motivated as men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I believe, based on my research and based on my work with couples, that men are far more emotionally complex than we allow them to be. Okay. I think society does not allow men to be as emotionally complex as they need to be. Um, on the same side women uh, require far more sexual variety than men to reach a point of pleasure. So it's not always Mm -hmm. emotion that is causing a woman to not be physically satisfied. Sometimes it is, you know, the man may not have a variety of technique because, you know, the requirements for a man to reach orgasm and a woman to reach orgasm are very, very different. Um, Mm -hmm. In a marriage, I think the way that you get beyond that is, again, looking at your marriage as a unique relationship finding out what are your partner's cues how can you how can you build not just the emotional intimacy and the physical intimacy but the spiritual intimacy the intellectual intimacy the experiential intimacy building upon those building blocks so that physical intimacy can be enjoyable and there are times that you know a woman may be able to say you know what i'm not really feeling my husband right now Mm -hmm. but i need to get this physical release same thing for a husband. I may not be feeling my wife right now. I really need to be emotionally comforted or I, I need to have some, some reassurance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we have to look at men and women um, from a more nuanced angle and not just okay. limit men to being physical and women to being emotional because when we do that, we limit our abilities to see the fullness of our partner. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, research is great. Um, but I think that for every research that you find on one right. side of the issue, there's going to be research on the other side of the issue. And it's mm-hmm. important to know what your spouse, how your spouse responds best. Because, you know, if this is the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with, it's important that you learn your partner's cues and how to best bolster and fortify your marriage for the both of you. Okay. So, Chola, I want to just touch on two more topics before we end. So, somewhat related to that, how should a couple, and have you come, have you um, dealt with couples like this, how should they deal with mismatched libidos? So, we often hear in the community, if it's the man who has this much higher sex drive, oh, well, he can just be polygamous. Do you think that is an actual solution? And of course, secondly, what if it's the woman? Then what does she do? Well, I think any man that enters into polygyny just for the sake of sex is going about it all wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh, that 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 is a whole different conversation yeah. for another day. But you know, I've talked to multiple couples who are engaged in polygyny and every man has told me if I had gotten into this for the sex, I, it, I, it would have been a nightmare <laughs> because that, that is not, you know, that's, it, it's because it can be difficult because these men, especially men who, who do have multiple wives, they understand that women's libidos can vary greatly. Some women mm-hmm. have really low libidos. Some women have extremely high libidos. And so when you have couples who have varying libidos, there are a couple of things you can do. One, uh, look to see is it a matter of libido or is it a matter of timing? Timing Mm. is so important when it comes to sex. If you're a person who works 
man or woman, you work a very intense job, you come home in the evening, maybe the only thing you want to do is eat a good meal and watch Netflix. You don't want to engage in, you know, sex, but maybe that's when your partner is most ready. Maybe you're a person who enjoys sex most in the morning. You have to find what your sexual window is with your partner. What are the best times that you both can get what you need? Is it in the middle of the night? Is it early in the morning? Is it after work? And try to find time and space to accommodate each other's needs, knowing that we're not always going to have sex on your schedule, but mm. it's going to be a balance between the two. I've, I've right. had clients that I've worked with, and we've, we've worked out the timing issue, and they're like, okay, we're good now. Wow. Um, other times, mm-hmm. it could be an issue of libido. Libido, a lot of times, is directly connected, in some cases, to the diet. You know, mm. What are you eating? What are you consuming? How is it affecting the way that your body is functioning sexually? It could be a hormonal issue for men or for women. And sometimes it requires uh, medical intervention. And and libido fluctuates. It it, it definitely fluctuates for any person. No person has an extremely high libido or an extremely low low libido at all times. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did a baby just come into the picture? That can affect libido for a woman, absolutely. It can also affect libido for a man because men may begin to look at their wives differently after they've Mm. had sex. So we really run through a list of what are the external factors that are affecting sexuality and your willingness to engage in sexuality because it might not be something that is massive. It just might be a problem that has been overlooked Mm because sex really for men and women, it starts in the brain. So we have to look at what are the things that are affecting the mind and then work on that. And then, you know, if there's a case where you're, you know, you, you have a lower libido and your partner's libido is, is higher, what can you do that might be non-sexual forms of physical intimacy that mm-hmm. can still give pleasure and that, can, might, that might be able to help increase libido? Right. There, there are lots of things that you can do to increase libido. I mean, you know, there are herbal supplements, or there are lots of other things. But again, all of this, none of this works if you don't talk to your partner. And it's surprisingly, it's surprising how many couples do not talk about sex. Mm-hmm. And I think if we talk about the bills, we talk mm-hmm. about what's happening at the masjid, we talk about whose family are we going to spend a eid with, we need to be talking about sex. So that that should definitely be a part of weekly date night or monthly marriage check-ins. We need to be talking about sex because it is a foundation in marriage. Alhamdulillah, that's so, alhamdulillah, really crucial, important because you just gave, you know, a lot of people different ways that you can um, approach this issue, right? It, It may not just be one thing. It can look like uh, mismatched libidos but it could be many other things and so that means there could be many solutions um the last Mm -hmm. question i'll ask you and then inshallah i'd like you to tell people how they can get in contact with you especially if they want to be your client um the last thing i'll ask is about you had spoken about and there was um a recent controversy in the community that almost seems to be happening every couple of months with um members of a community of whatever Muslim community it is, wherever it's located, um, that have somehow the women have been taken advantage of by the imam, the leader. So it could be um, serial polygamy. So women are basically being married and dumped very quickly. 
um, or things that are far worse or maybe things that are less than that. Um, I know that you've spoken about that on Twitter. I don't know if you said you were going to write something, but what is your take in general on these issues and just what can women do to not find themselves in that circumstance? And I don't know what, what we might say about the leaders in that situation, um, but sort of what's your perspective on all of it? I was, so with recent controversies that have come out, I became involved a few months before they um, hit the public Mm -hmm. because I had some of the women who were involved in some of these controversies, a couple of them reach out to me personally. And one of the things that struck me in almost every conversation was the lack of knowledge that these Mm -hmm. women had about the relationships in which they were engaging. They were told, you know, in, in one case, They were told, you know, this is okay. And in another case, they were told, this is not okay, but you just make Taliban afterwards. There were were Mm -hmm. several different um, instances. In some cases, the men just outright lied, right? Mm -hmm. And this is not about one particular person. Mm -hmm. And what what struck me was the lack of knowledge. And a couple weeks ago, uh, last week, Ustazi Rukayat Yakub was here, and we had a halakha, and we were talking about, in the halakha, not about this situation at all, but we were talking about the importance of women gaining knowledge, sacred mm-hmm. knowledge. And she said it's so important for us to make sure that we educate our daughters and we educate ourselves so that when someone comes to them and they they tell them something about Islam. The beauty and the brilliance of the deen is not something that will dazzle them because they've already heard it before. So I can't come to you and relate a hadith or, you know, relate a story from the theater and use it to romance you because you can say, oh, my my mother has shared that with (laughs) me or, oh, yes, I've read that in a book. So arming ourselves with the knowledge of this beautiful way of life and making sure that we understand what does marriage entail? What is dina? What is halal? What is haram? Making sure that we have that education, that is going to give us an armor and a shield to protect us against people who may try to groom us. Mm, now, yeah. you know, if, if a person is a predator, right, mm. um, and, and, you know, in some cases it, it's women engaging in consensual relationships because they have a love for this person, you know, but maybe the relationship structure is not halal. Mm -hmm. In other cases, there's grooming of women who are underage. A predator Mm -hmm. is a predator, right? And and how do you protect yourself? You protect yourself by arming yourself with knowledge. So we need more women who are educating other women about Islam. We need Mm -hmm. more women who are engaging in knowledge and studying sick. We need more women who are studying the theater, more women who are studying Quran, more women so that we can go out into the community and educate ourselves so that we can't be taken unawares by spiritual manipulation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, subhanAllah. Thank you so much for being on. Alhamdulillah, I've learned so much and I really appreciate your work. I think you have an event coming up in November, right? Later November? Uh, I Actually, I have an event in December, okay. December 21st, um, in Philadelphia. It'll be at oh, Masjid Allah, and it's actually with Coach Q, uh, Imam Saiz Abdullah, who's uh, an imam at Kuba Institute. It's a day-long marriage retreat. So I'll be doing village mm-hmm. auntie workshops with the women. Uh, he'll be doing workshops with the men, and then we'll come together and talk about some of the things that we can do to help fortify our marriages as Muslims. Okay, Hamnina, And what's your... 
email if you have an email people can reach you and your social media is village auntie so what's your email and maybe website people can reach you up um the email is angelica at villageauntie.com uh the website is currently being built okay. um but yeah people can reach out to me angelica at villageauntie.com they can follow me on twitter or on instagram at village auntie and there's also a facebook page reclaiming the village auntie and then I thank you again for coming on and thank you all for 